Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, Scott and I are going to talk about this idea of deconstruction. And Scott, that word alone can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. So why don't you give us a little background on why you're interested in having this conversation? Yeah. And yeah, there's a there's a very technical French deconstructionist uh, model of thinking that uh, has been hijacked, in a sense, by many people. And I wouldn't call it that it's bad that they've hijacked it. It's just that this term is now being used by many Christians, former Christians, who have begun to examine the, the the Christian beliefs, the church, the institution that they have always been a part of, and they're finding it lacking. The other day, Chris and I, when we were walking around the lake, I think is when we had this conversation, I said, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, Chris and I experienced this in American Christianity. Is, And it was really unusual because the fronting problem was bringing a guitar into worship services <laughs> in American fundamentalist, evangelical, conservative churches. Yes. And drums. drums. Drums was a big, big deal. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, you can't be old enough to remember this. <laughs> well, I, I still remember the fallout. The conversations were still happening in the 80s, and I grew up in a church okay. that was strictly yeah. organ and piano. Um, oh, you yeah. Know, they yeah. would not make room for the drums ever. <laughs> and, but what, what was happening was uh, our gener- my generation's youth, owing largely to the Jesus people of California— were refashioning what Christianity really was over against our parents Mm. who had fallen prey to an institutionalism and a sort of uh, deadening Christian faith. All right, so so then we see this happening again in the, let's say, the 90s to the early 2000s in the emerging movement. Yeah. Uh, They're they're doing the same thing, and they, they are finding... The faith of their fathers. You know, Bob Smeetan in his book, Reorganize Religion. This is not your grandmother's church anymore. Yeah. You know, he changed it from grandfather. but and, and it's not your father's or your mother's church anymore. And things were changing. And they made serious changes in churches. And there, there was an impact of the 70s on how church is being done in the, let's say, the 2000s. It was a reaction to the kinds of church that those people in the 70s created, <laughs> and part of it was the mega church movement, the yes. church growth movement, yes. all that sort of thing just came under fire. And right now, I think we're finding the next generation. So it's like every 20 years. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it, as a generation? Yeah. yeah. It, right now, we're finding a lot of people who are looking at the church and finding it wanting, finding it lacking. And they're calling attention to the things that they see as a problem in the church. Hmm. So, you know, Laura, you're of a certain generation that I'm not. What are you seeing for of why people are deconstructing? They call this process of dismantling and disengaging from the church they grew up deconstruction. And it's not the technical French philosophical term, too bad. It is the (laughs) term that everybody's using, and I think it's worth paying attention. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just say this. I think that the deconstructors 
are, they almost have a prophetic voice、mm. into the church at times today. And I think we need to be listening to them. So, what are they saying? Yeah, I would definitely agree that I think they are putting their finger on some real issues within the life of the church. And、um, it's almost a splintering effect that I'm seeing. And you, you reached out to me recently and I said, you know, have you had this conversation with people? Are you talking with people about this? And I just started listing all of yeah, the different people. Yeah. And I said, you know, Single women that I you know, grew up with、um, or went to college with. I went to an evangelical Christian college, and women who are still single in their 40s are leaving church because they feel like the church doesn't see them, doesn't have a place for them, doesn't know what to do with them.、Um, so that's one category.、Um, I've talked with women who have experienced domestic abuse and went to their church for care and for direction and experienced further,、um, I would call it abuse in the way that they were counseled、mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and led by their churches. And so, though, some, I know of at least one woman, but I've read others online that have walked away from churches or experienced just a lot of hurt from churches by how churches handled those situations. Yeah.、Um, yeah. I think when I was growing up in, in, at my Christian college in the 90s, one of the things that we used to talk about with one another is that our churches had taught us to be known for what we were against.、Um, mm-hmm. that, that as a culture, Christians were known for what we were against rather than what we were for. And I remember feeling like, I just frustrated by that because there's a lot of Christianity that's incredibly compelling, and yet、mm-hmm. the wider culture sees us as being against a few political issues, and that's the sum of what Christianity means to them.、Um, so I、yeah. see some people walking away from church、um, because they associate, associate it with certain political views, and I've seen.、Um, Parents, you know, I'm, I have teenagers now. So I, I've been watching some of my age mates as they've been raising children, reevaluating some of the church culture they grew up in and questioning whether or not they wanted that for their own kids. So that's been another、mm-hmm. reason that I've seen people distance themselves.、Um, I think for a lot of women、um, that are coming to terms with where they're able to serve and not serve within the life of their church, that's been a sticking point. I think、um, race is another factor as, as people are beginning to grapple with how、um, the church responds to racism.、Um, for some people, it feels like the wool is being pulled back from our eyes on a lot of different issues. And we're looking at the church and wondering what the church has to say about these things because Jesus. Has plenty to say about these things.、Um, yeah, yeah. And in some cases, we're finding the church has either been silent or has been misguided、um, or has been harmful in its response to、mm-hmm. some of the things that we care very deeply about. And that's where I'm seeing the splintering. And for some folks, it's meant they've completely abandoned the church. It doesn't always mean they've abandoned their faith. Um, sometimes they've found other places to land, but boy, is that a long and painful journey to find a new、mm-hmm. Christian community. And some have just given up altogether.、Um, and, and they still love Jesus, but they can't seem to find a community where they feel seen and, and where they feel like they can fully give themselves to it because they are、um, compatible with what's being taught. You know, Laura, I don't think a lot of people understand how significant it is. 
to be enculturated into a community of faith, let's say into a form of evangelicalism. Yeah. And what it means to them existentially, personally, relationally, socially to break free from that. Where do they go? You know, it's sort of like Peter, you know, in in John chapter six, where where are we going to go? Right, right. And there is a sense in which people don't appreciate how long it takes to be enculturated into a group. And, you know, if you pay attention to cultural transformation theory, the standard expression is it takes seven years to form a new culture. It just makes me wonder how long it takes for us to be enculturated into a group to where it becomes our instinct, our habit, our life, in which we, you know, we put these clothes on and they feel so comfortable like an yeah. old pair of jeans. Yeah. Or like a Henley t-shirt that I wear every day. <laughs> and during the summer, I wear a lighter one. Okay. And that's part of what happens is yeah. that a lot of these deconstructionists, and I'll, I'll look at some other reasons, have found themselves in a position where they say, I no longer fit here. Right. I no longer belong to this group of people. And they can ask the question, to whom do I belong? And they can look at some of their precious ideas, things that they hold to be very mm-hmm. important but where are you going to find that group? Right. You know, I've, I was talking to someone not that long ago who said, I'm in ACNA and I can't stand this place. I'm going to be Episcopalian. <laughs> or they said they, they, they saw this a few years ago. So they went Episcopalian and they discovered there's just as many problems among the Episcopalians as there are among ACNA people. Right. It's different right. problems. And some people say they don't want to be a part of evangelicalism because it's too political. But when it comes down to it, it's because the politics of evangelicalism is different than their politics. Right. Because the churches that they may end up going to are going to be probably just as political. And in many ways, you know, mainline, more progressive churches are very political. Yeah. It's more subtle many times, but sometimes not so subtle. You know, tell, tell us about this new ad that showed <laughs> – now, look, I watched the Super Bowl. I'm one of those people – who watches the Super Bowl and then reads during commercials. <laughs> Other people watch the commercials and then, then read while they're watching the football game. Right. So I didn't, I oh, didn't even funny. see these ads. <laughs> I saw one early about Bradley Cooper, and I thought it was just corny. That's uh, too I couldn't funny. Figure out. When I watch the Super Bowl, I pay no attention to the football. I only watch the commercials. But we... We were talking about this in a class recently um, after the Super Bowl, the He Gets Us ads, which is, yeah, yeah, He Gets Us. And it's a series of ads that really highlight the humanity of Jesus and the ability of Jesus to connect and relate to our human experience. And they're very compelling. Um, They're very thoughtful and... um, I think they're well done from a marketing point of view. They're very, very interesting. Um, but it, it it raises all kinds of questions that kind of follow the deconstruction model, which is who's paying for these ads? What is the goal of these ads? What are we hoping is accomplished by these ads? And um, one of our classmates was raising the question, I forget how much money, it was millions of dollars. I want to say like $10 million was spent on the Super Bowl ad space. It's uh it was 
seven million dollars per thirty seconds. Oh wow! So it's a, it's a lot of money, and the yeah, question yeah. is: Is that a responsible use of? these resources from a stewardship point of view. And one of our classmates was saying, you know, you could do a lot of good. You could pay for meals and shelter and do a lot of things with that kind of money that would also testify and witness to the goodness of God through the loving care of God's people. Um, That that also is a compelling witness that Christians could have that wouldn't be a Super Bowl ad. So it led to a really lively discussion in class. And, um, but I think it gets at this deconstruction question, like how far do you go? And at what point are we throwing out sort of good enough ideas that aren't perfect? And so I think this is where, uh, when I have conversations with my friends that are leaving a church or leaving the church altogether, I think that's always one of my questions. Like, no church is perfect, but there are churches that are good enough, and Christ cares that we're in community, that we're part of a body, um, because that's how we experience growth in Christ. So that is the good that we may be losing because it's not perfect, and it's never going to be perfect. So I guess that's part of my deconstruction question is, if it's not going to be perfect, can we be satisfied with something less than perfect that still has some redeemable good in it? But also there are some places that are pretty rotten that just need to be abandoned. Let me uh, say three things here. D.L. Moody is the one who made evangelicalism ad-friendly. In his evangelistic campaign, he used the social media of the day to promote his events. So since the so the entire 20th century, evangelicalism has been amenable and accommodates itself to an ad-friendly environment. The second thing is, there's 113 million people who are watching the Super Bowl. It's the yeah. third most, uh, I saw this this morning. I never pay attention to such things, but I saw it this morning. I thought, well, that's a lot of people. You know, that's a third of the world's population. That's a lot of eyeballs looking at the (laughs) same screen. (laughs) Let's see. That's a third of the United States, 300 million. Yeah. Right? Yeah, 300 some. Okay. The third thing is this. Kirsten Powers, I read her essay today. She, on her Substack, I'm not sure of the name of it. I don't remember Substack names other than my own. And I don't think anybody (laughs) even knows that I have a name for mine. She really went after this. She told an interesting story that for a decade, she attended Tim Keller's church, Redeemer Church in Manhattan. And she starts out by telling a story that she was vulnerable in a relationship with someone who convinced her to go to this church. And for a decade, she got caught up into American evangelicalism of the Tim Keller variety, which is pretty intelligent. Yeah. But she said, this is what she describes. And in some ways, I would have a a slight critique of this. She describes that it was a a kind of a false front. Mm. It was intelligent. It was winsome. It talked a lot about art in the sermons and sophisticated topics. But deep inside, the farther you dug, you discovered that it was quite conservative politically. And of course, she's not conservative politically. She's a progressive (laughs) and always has been. Ever since I think she grew up in Alaska, and she has I think she's got a really interesting book about grace. I think it's a very good book. She felt like she was duped. I I would you know if I were having coffee with Kirsten Powers, I would say, well, you know, you're a journalist. That's your job to dig. 
Yeah. Uh, did, you could have dug uh, yeah. and found this pretty quickly, I think, in that in that circle. But then she said, then she applies this to the what's it, the he gets us, mm-hmm. and she has been digging like crazy, and she discovers that the money comes from what we would call, I think it's fair to call, right-wing evangelical type, even fundamentalist types, and right-wing politics. And she finds that to be deceitful Mm. at the ad level that this is not more up front. This shows the hermeneutic of so many people in the deconstruction mode who, you know, here it is, Kristen Powers talking about power is that there is a power dynamic at work in these ads that she points at and says this is a misuse of power because mm-hmm. you're not transparent and authentic about this right up front. Yeah. And she had trouble getting the group actually to admit. I mean, and some things they would not admit. They would say, go look at this, go ahead. You can't find your answers, what, what you're looking for. So I think deconstructors will read Kirsten Powers and say, that's what I'm talking about yeah. right there. Yeah. That's the problem with so much of American evangelicalism. There's too many ulterior motives at work mm. behind the scenes that are shaping what's going on on the platform, but it actually defeats the way they see the vision of Jesus for the kingdom of God in this world. Yeah. So, for instance, poverty is another reason, or just plain justice yeah. How committed it has the evangelical church been actually to justice? Or is it committed to topics that are part of their tribe and right. they call that justice? And can they get in the uh, naked public square hmm. and actually articulate a vision of justice that is compelling to Americans rather than just a front, a deceitful front for American evangelicalism? I think yeah. economics is a big part of this. Hmm. You know, we have a professor on campus whom we all know, who has the initials David Fitch, who has has a lot of concern about capitalism. He just yeah. came back from Canada and he says, oh, I came back to this country where all this greed and capital, he was just kind of talking about, all right, we can, we can have fun with that. But the point is, there are a lot of people who are looking at the system of economics in the United States and they don't think it's innocent. Right. They think that it is connected to power, to whiteness, that it's invisible, and there ought to be a greater sense of distribution. Well, you know, I read the the Bible. You read the Bible. Mm-hmm. You read Deuteronomy. There is a great concern of distributing resources for the good of the poor. You know the story of manna, where everybody got to have what they needed for that day, except on Friday when they got two days, and it <laughs> preserved and they didn't get to have more. And right. Paul uses that very image in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 to describe the way early Christians were treating one another. Mm. And he appealed to the Corinthians and to the Greeks and to everybody else, to the Achaeans, to fund the poor saints in Jerusalem because the Bible teaches equitable distribution to all so that everybody has what they need. This is a big concern for a lot of people. And they're saying, well, the church, here's my pastor. You know, how many of us saw the story of James McDonald? Yeah. You know, the story of making nearly a million dollars a year. Yeah. 
and thinking, now, isn't that over the top of what evangelical leaders should be making? Now, of course, if you write like Rick Warren did, The Purpose Driven Life, and it sells, what, 70 million copies, or what uh, Tim LaHaye and and, uh, Jerry Jenkins write, and it sells all those copies, you're going to make a lot of money doing that. But there's a sense in which that's a product that's sold in the open market is different than what God's people are given as tithing, and a lot of poor people giving their money, and this guy, you know, and and I'm not just going to pick on James McDonald. I mean, that's a case, but there are a lot of people, and the young evangelical Christians who are deconstructing, that's just fuel for their fire, for what they're seeing. I hear this about two other topics, and that one of them is hell. Mm. I have met so many Christians over the years, evangelical student types when I was teaching undergrads, who just could not comprehend the idea that God would raise unbelievers from the dead, bring them to the judgment seat, and then assign them to intentional, purposeful punishment eternally with no hope of reprieve. And they're thinking, that looks like torture to me, mm-hmm. and that does not look right. Is is would we treat anybody that way? Right. Such disproportionality yeah. between the sin and the punishment. The other one I find I have found over the years, and that's why I worked with Dennis Venema on the book Adam and the Genome. Is so many evangelical Christians are just scandalized, and it helps them deconstruct some of their faith on the basis of science evolution and how evangelical Christians have taught creation in Genesis 1, and you got the Creation Museum in Kentucky, I think it's in Kentucky and all, and you're going, whoa, a lot of people look at that stuff and they say, this just isn't going to work for me. Right. So this is the appeal of a a person like Peter Enns, Mm -hmm. who's a friend of mine. You know, the Bible... uh, for the rest of us or something like that. You know, that's there's, there's something about that. So... Well, that's some of the things I'm seeing. I'm I'm not sure all the years are you are you seeing those topics as well, you know. Oh yeah, science and and that's the one with I think parents, you know, some of the my friends as they're raising their children um really struggling with I don't want my children to grow up fearing science in the way that I was taught to fear science in church as mm-hmm. a child. Um mm-hmm. and and yeah, absolutely. I think there are there's sort of a laundry list of topics that um, evangelicals are reassessing. And I think many of them are left with these questions of, this is the culture that I was raised to know Jesus in. I am really uncomfortable with this culture. Um, So what does that mean for my faith? And I've had this conversation Mm -hmm. with my own kids, and I really try to emphasize for them, this is what the Bible says about God. This is who Jesus is. Now, on top mm. of that, you will find in churches and, you know, our church that I lead and every other church, there's a layer on top of that that is cultural, um, that is informed by a system of beliefs that Christians have created, and it's connected to Scripture, but some of it we have inadvertently given the authority of scripture in our lives when we talk to one another. And we need to be really careful um, that we separate those things. In other words, here's what the Bible says about God. Here's who, who Jesus is. And here are some cultural beliefs that are open to debate, 
open to question. And there's a variety of places that Christians can fall on these different questions and still maintain faith. Um, but not to treat, not to turn those into weapons against one another. And I think that's where people in my age group are really reeling from this sense of we're just tired of it. We're tired of Christians beating each other up over um, some of these issues that we're claiming the authority of Scripture. And I, I don't know that Scripture is as conclusive about some of those things or if scripture is conclusive, it's in surprising ways. Like you're talking about issues related to the poor. Um, And and so I think we're saying like, we need to reassess how we talk about these things with one another and, and how we treat one another over these topics in the church. Well, the other thing I was thinking of now, I'm not a very good participant in this, but the, the podcast, is that what it was called? That Christianity to did, on Mark Driscoll, whatever sure. it was called. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Yeah, The Rise and Fall. Yeah. What, I mean, do you know the numbers of people who listen to that? A lot of people. And what I think yeah. is interesting about that is that some non Christians follow that podcast series as well. And for them, I think they looked at it and said, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, I think that that was a symptom yeah. of what we could call the. The moral collapse in the heart of American evangelical leaders. Yeah. So you, I mean, okay, now let's let's start with the Roman Catholic Church in Boston and all these places where there's been so much sexual abuse in twisted and... Uh, cover up. Yeah, and violent way, yes, and yeah. cover up. And the amount of money yeah. that they have actually paid behind closed doors so people wouldn't know. Millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. And then we find out that this is this is a worldwide problem. Okay. Yeah. Then we find that big story in the Houston Chronicle about the Southern Baptist Church with all those pastors. They dug up one story, hundreds of stories yeah. about pastors who yeah. had abused mostly teenage girls. Not entirely, but I mean, there was a lot, so much of that, that that's what grabbed so much of our attention. And then you see some of these megachurch stories that all happened within the space of a couple years. And all of a sudden, we have a generation of young Christians who look at places like that and say, that was so important for me at that time, but I now just think that's vile. And they have, you know, they've almost demonized it, and they just despise that form of Christianity. And that's, I think that was one of the attractions of the rise and fall of Mars Hill is that it gave to expression. It just delineated. And I got to be honest, I listened to only one episode (laughs) and part of another, but Chris, I think, listened to two and a half episodes. Uh, I just couldn't take any more. I just thought I I deal with this too much. I I don't, most of what they're saying, I know, but it was very well produced. I mean, the stories were good and and they had some really good people who they interviewed. Yeah. But... um, I think this is another reason for deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And Laura, to me, one of the great challenges of pastoring today, of teaching where I teach at a seminary, who a lot of our students are pastors, almost all of them are heavily engaged in church, whether they're pastors. They're doing all kinds of things. Plus, so many of them are parents, and they are you yeah. know, trying to nurture faith in their children. We need to come into dialogue with the deconstruction crowd in such a way that we can listen to them Mm -hmm. and learn from them 
and see if there's not a way for them to help us find a form of Christianity that can last for the next generation. Yeah. So that in 2040, I might be here still then, okay? <laughs> if I live as long as my parents, I'll be here in 2040. The, the next time this rises into a, a let's say, a rejection of our grandparents' religion, our mm-hmm. parents' religion, we will be rejecting a vibrant vision mm-hmm. that was contributed to by the deconstructionists who said, the church has got to get back to Jesus. The church has got to get back to discipleship. Yeah. The church has got to get back to serving other people. The church has got to get back to justice. It's got to care about peace. It has to become more loving. Yeah. And let's let's see what a church looks like that actually has these as the central values. Yeah. I th- I think I think that's what you're doing in your church. I hope so. I mean that is that is certainly the goal. I think I, I'm realistic enough to also conclude there are things we're gonna get wrong. I mean, every church, yeah, every yeah. culture is going to have pieces that they get wrong. And um, I hope that we approach it with humility and openness to learn um, and to be willing to look at those things and review them. Um, But I, I just in talking with lots of people over the years, the sense that I have is, just a deep longing that we don't lose sight of Jesus in all of this. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. would say from my friends that I went to college with, there have been those who have clung to Jesus and have, in many cases, discarded systems that they grew up in and found a new system that they think might do it better. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there are folks that have just completely walked away. And I think this is a little bit of what I hear you saying that Kirsten Powers is getting at. When you feel like you've been duped, or tricked, um, it's real hard to come to terms with that. And I think to be able to say, but there's still goodness there. That is still the place I encountered Jesus. And so that is valuable, even if this other stuff was a part of it. It's, it's an untangling. And I think when deconstruction happens best, it's that untangling of holding on to Jesus and pulling out the parts that were extra, that were unnecessary, that were um, misguided. And, you know, best case scenario, you can say people were doing their best. Um, They were probably duped and tricked in different ways as well. Um, Sometimes it's intentional, and I think we need to call that out. Well, that's good. Um, I think you're right, is that so many have, a lot of people have, let's say, disentangled from the church, but they are hanging tight onto Jesus. And maybe that's where we begin with a new generation of post-deconstruction that's reconstruction, but it wants to root a church in the vision of Jesus and really stick tight with that because that breathes new life and is sustainable. Yeah. So, And that's what I get excited about, especially as a church planner, is talking to others who are trying radical new things. And being very intentional, I mean, I've, I've 
probably told you this before, but I really enjoy talking to other female church planters and other um, church planters that are people of color that are operating from a very different starting point. Um, Mm -hmm. We are not necessarily welcomed into the world of evangelicalism as charismatic powerhouses that are going to, you know, lead these giant churches. Most of the church planners I'm talking about are starting very small and are, because of their reality, having to be incredibly creative um, and countercultural in how they are starting churches. And I get excited about what that could mean for the next generation of the church. Um, I I hope it will look different. Um, And I find that to be a compelling vision. And I think there are people who come to these churches who come to us and they're a little, they're a little beat up by their church experience Um, and they're looking to heal and looking to do things differently. So that, that to me gives me excitement and it's, it's exciting to see what Jesus is going to do in those pockets. Very good. Very good. Well, this was a fun conversation, and I'm sure it will stir some things in our listeners, and hopefully we'll get some feedback from you all. Uh, But we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thanks so much. 